If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Staycation idea. But first... There is some backlash from the RCMP's response to the Shuswap wildfires that happening last night. And it's a bit of a strange one because the BC Wildfire Service actually did issue a tweet or I guess a post on X, however you want to refer to it. The BC Wildfire Service described an incident as an ongoing effort to dismantle the RCMP checkpoint on Highway 1 near Sorrento. That's on the south side of Shuswap Lake. That was sent just before 9 o'clock last night. The wildfire service saying it was unsafe to continue operations there. Crews, contractors, heavy equipment operators, and structural firefighters would be reassigned to other areas of the Bush Creek East Fire and the Ross Moore Lake Fire, also near Kamloops. That post, by the way, it was deleted. Word this afternoon, just in the past hour, why it was deleted, the RCMP told the BC Wildfire Service to do so. I guess a clarification, right? Not censorship, but a clarification. So there is that. An interesting situation that's unfolding. We'll get to Greg Kylo in just a moment. But this is a clip from this afternoon's news conference. The speaker, Forrest Tower, from the BC Wildfire Service, he addressed this. We made that post uh, based on information received from RCMP uh, and other partners. Kind of simultaneously as we posted it, um, we received information from RCMP uh, that the situation we were describing uh, was not as um, uh, serious in the moment. And so deleting it was the choice was made uh, in, in an effort to not give something steam that didn't and doesn't deserve to have it. We know the power of social media uh, in terms of making something um, bigger than it might be. So just based on advice from the RCMP uh, and just having more information provided to us, uh, that was the decision made. Um, to remove that post. Oh, somebody's forcing somebody to eat some humble pie there. But uh, let's bring in BC United MLA for shoe swap, Greg Kylo now. Good afternoon, Greg. Good afternoon, Bruce. Greg, got to ask, you know, this incident aside, we're hearing so many stories of some people being a little concerned about how authorities are handling this situation. These are your voters, your constituents in the shoe swap. And then we're also being told that the community is in harmony, holding hands and uh, singing from the same tune book. Which is it? Well, I would say it's it's a little bit of both. Um, you know, I think that uh, there have been definitely efforts undertaken both by the BC Wildfire Service along with the Emergency Operations Center, which is under the uh, control of the Columbia Shuswap Regional District, there have been efforts to try and, and calm things down and, and provide uh, the free movement of, of a lot of goods and services under permit, I would say, uh, into the communities of Anglemont and to provide those necessary supports for those folks that are still working the fire uh, within the evacuation order area. Greg, I understand when tensions are high and if you're worrying about uh, maybe your livestock and certainly your home, you might be a little bit nervous, especially if you're not getting answers. But here's where I still have a bit of an issue with this. There are people that still don't know if their property is being destroyed. And they're talking about destruction that likely would have occurred before the weekend. Is that acceptable? Do you accept the notion that, well, we just want the right information? Yeah, people are, are definitely uh, concerned about, you know, the, the state of, of, of their community and their homes. Um, 
there's a lot of work undertaken. Uh, I know a lot of the focus has largely been on areas that have been impacted, you know, even far greater than the North Shushwap, uh, West Kelowna, as an example. Uh, there was an update this afternoon from the Columbia Regional District indicating that uh, those people going in and doing the assessments, that they're assembling that information. And my understanding is it's going to be released tomorrow. Uh, you know, a lot of this devastation under uh, un- came about in the community both on Friday and Saturday. So, you know, I'm sure people would like it sooner, uh, but I'm certainly heartened to hear that it's coming forward now. Um, you know, in these instances and emergencies, there's always more that could have been done. Communication is absolutely key, as you've identified. Um, I think that we're on a better path and we are working together. Uh, you know, we're hearing words like from BC Wildfire Service of working collaboratively with locals, uh, respecting the fact that they have done a large amount of work locally within the community, working alongside uh, volunteer fire departments. And so we have the volunteer fire departments of uh, Scotch Creek and Anglemont and Solista. And we've also had lots of support from other communities, uh, community of Sycamus and Big White, I know, have equipment actively working the fire. So, you know, the, the focus or the, uh, we need to focus our attentions on the fire. And, you know, although there may be some conflicts that may arise uh, between all of the different groups, both BC Wildfire Service, the uh, volunteer fire departments, and then the locals, you know, we need to work together. And, and I'm seeing a lot more movement along that vein. So, you know, although uh, there may have been uh, some challenges previously, I think we're slowly uh, seeing some improvement on the ground. Greg, uh, there's no doubt that those involved in the firefighting effort, and you named all the or many of the different services, I'd also include uh, some of the relief organizations that have come into the area. They're doing a fantastic job under very trying circumstances. But this is where I have a problem. In watching wildfires around North America for years in many different jurisdictions, information still comes out and it's still made a priority. And the reason for that is because we know that when we get good information, we're not going to go to rumors, conjecture, or heaven forbid people thinking they have to form some sort of convoy and go right up to the lines of where there are RCMP or police. This could be avoided by better information, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and uh, I certainly can't speak for, for those individuals that were involved in and supposedly this this interaction that happened over on Trans-Canada Highway Number 1 on, in Sorrento. I do know that the folks of the North Shushwap uh, denounce any, uh, any uh, direct correlation between, you know, people that might be trying to link that Freedom Convoy with some of the concerns in North Shushwap. Those are totally separate, distinct. Uh, I certainly don't uh, disagree with the with the approach of the BC Wildfire Service of not adding further oxygen to that fire. Uh, my understanding, there may have been a few vehicles that presented themselves to the check stop on Highway Number 1. There was some conversation with the RCMP, and then the folks turned around and left. So it wasn't an escalated interaction as far as what's been told to me. Um, I do know that the folks in the North Shushwap, they love and care deeply about their community. They are doing what they feel is is necessary, what is right and what's just in order to protect their community from any further damage. They're trying to be respectful, uh, both of those uh, that have, you know, a hard job to do. Uh, There is, you know, obviously reasons and rationale why uh, the RCMP presence is there to uh, be able to monitor and and determine who is coming in and out of a fire impacted zone. Uh, So they're doing the work that they need to do. I'm definitely uh, heartened by the work of uh, both BC Wildfire Service and the Columbia Shushwap Regional District through the Emergency Operations Centre, and that uh, what we're seeing on the ground and certainly hearing is is an interest and a desire to be more supportive of getting goods and services into those folks that are working within that fire impacted zone. Uh, What do you make of people's general feelings going forward once we actually have everything resolved? Yeah, so, you know, things are much better than they certainly were a number of days ago. We've seen a a change in position largely, uh, both of the Emergency Operations Centre and even communication coming out of BC Wildfire Service. You know, it was only a few days ago uh, you heard uh, some pretty strong language coming about uh, those individuals that stayed on their properties to protect their properties within the North Shushwap. 
Uh, there was communication coming uh, out of the Emergency Operations Centre uh, indicating that they would not be authorizing supplies or permits to support people who ignored the evacuation order. I'm glad that they have moved away from that and we are now seeing a more willingness, uh, I think, to respect and recognize those individuals that, uh, you know, stayed behind and, and had the legal right to remain on their property and protect their properties. Um, you know, there was some communication a number of days ago where there was a feeling amongst North Shushwap residents that, uh, that you know, efforts would be undertaken to literally starve them out, not to get them or provide them the opportunity to replenish uh, essential services or essential items like water and food and fuel. Um, we've seen a movement, and so I'm happy to see that, right? I want to focus on the future, not on the past so much, but, you know, North Shushwap residents have reason to be very upset uh, over the way uh, they were treated and disrespected. Um, but, you know, the, the plan forward is to focus on tomorrow and to see that we can continue to, you know, collaborate. We're hearing the right words out of BC Wildfire Service and definitely a change of heart, I think, even within the Emergency Operations Centre. So, you know, I'm certainly seeing a path forward, right? We're all part of the same community. We all want people to be safe. We want to be able to protect as many buildings and as much of the community environment as we possibly can. And I do feel that we've turned the corner and we're on that path now, Bruce. Greg, do you think there is a gap between uh, policymakers in places like Victoria and those who are the local experts on their own area living in the shoe swap? Uh, is that part of what happened here? You got some people right there in the urban centers making some big uh, decisions on how to handle this? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, <clears throat> the North Shushwap is a pretty unique community. These are uh, very resilient individuals. Uh, you know, we have loggers and farmers and ranchers and road builders, people that are, you know, used to living in the bush. They've, many of them got chainsaws in their, in their backyard and they've got access to lots of equipment. I know some of the local contractors in the area, you know, the, the Bischoff family, they're multi-generational loggers from the area, world championship uh, uh, loggers. Uh, these folks, along with, you know, a guy named Craig Spooner, uh, Spooner Electric, these guys have access to tons of equipment, and they've been doing a lot of work putting in fire guards, fire breaks, uh, hauling water from the lake, uh, running different crews within the area to help uh, work alongside the local volunteer fire departments in order to tackle the blaze. And so, you know, these folks uh, certainly deserve a lot of respect. The, the law is pretty clear is that uh, you do have the right to remain uh, within an evacuation order area to protect your property. And there's been a lot of talk and conversation about, you know, those that stay behind or potentially putting others at risk. Well, Shishwap Lake's very unique. It's bordered, you know, on the south, the entire southern shoreline uh, or north shoreline of the lake, but uh, the southern port of the community is Shishwap Lake. Most of these folks have their own access to boats or lots of marinas. There's multiple means of egress. You know, should something, uh, you know, turn in, in a bad, bad way. So it's not like they're at the end of a one-way road where suddenly other people's lives are going to be at stake to try and go in and rescue them. Very different situation when you have, you know, these skilled individuals in the North Shushwap. And again, the, these are volunteer fire departments. So most of their friends and neighbors that live within the community, they're members of these volunteer fire departments. So I mentioned both Scotch Creek and Solista and Anglemont. Uh, those folks are, you know, working hard within the community and they're all neighbors and friends. So just because you're not maybe a member of the volunteer fire department does not mean uh, that, uh, you know, locals in the area aren't working together with them. They're all part of the same community. They're all on the same team and they're trying to stay focused on doing what they need to do to protect their community. Absolutely. And I appreciate your thoughts on that. And of course, your time on it, Greg. Thanks for joining us. Bruce, thank you so very much. Well, there are plenty of stories uh, of concern about the wildfires, but there are also these stories emerging, and you've heard plenty of them here on this show over the past few days. And uh, they're really inspiring stories of people coming out to help others who need help, maybe because they're wildfire evacuees, maybe because they've actually lost their homes. And this is when communities around the province really come together to support each other going to talk about one interesting one, and it comes down to helping with immediate shelter and a place to sleep 
for many of the people ordered out of certain areas, and it's living or temporarily being set up in an RV. You see, Fraser Valley RV, a BC company, is providing some RVs for families affected by the wildfire evacuations. Let's talk with Rex Sheehy, the CEO of Fraser Way RV. He joins us now. Rex, uh, good afternoon. Yeah, good afternoon, Bruce. Tell me about this idea, how it popped into your head or your team's head and what you're doing. Uh, but Bruce, I, I, I've got to say one of the, the joys of uh, working with Fraser Way is that it's uh, been part of their DNA for 54 years uh, with the Epp family to be involved in all the communities that they actually uh, support and uh, run businesses in. And uh, so... Uh, it's, it's not a new idea, I think, as, as far as supporting communities, but uh, we have um, a significant network coast-to-coast coast of uh, rental RVs. Uh, we're the biggest in the country, and uh, when you know, our, we have a, a dealership in Kelowna in the Okanagan uh, and Shushwap area, and our team was affected by the fire, we were like, okay, firstly, how do we help our team? How do we help the community? And... Uh, you know, we have the infrastructure in place and say, well, why don't we make uh, RVs available at uh, 50% discount uh, to make it as affordable as possible um, for people to have shelter? And uh, so that's where the idea came from. And, uh, you know, Fraser ARV is, is definitely wanting to help and give us as much support as possible. So tell me how that would work and if uh, people were interested in booking one of the RVs because they are displaced, how they go about doing it and how you'd match them up in the right area, the right location with what their needs are. Uh, absolutely. Um, Fraserway RV, um, just ring directly to our, our rentals. Uh, you'll see uh, it online and uh you know, they will, uh, we have a Four Seasons, which is uh, another part of Fraserway RV in Abbotsford. It's all part of the same business. And uh, we have RVs that we put aside that are, are ready to go. And, um, you know, we'll do whatever we can to try and make it as convenient as possible for people to access them. Um, you know, we're just hoping that uh, people that are actually affected by, by the fire uh, will be the ones that take up the opportunity uh, so as not to sort of... Uh, take a lot of rentals out of the market for those that really need them. Yeah, Rex, uh, this must be high season for the rental market for RVs. Are you able to supply enough right now? Yeah, absolutely. We will, uh, if we need to, we'll we'll pull uh, uh, units that we had up for sale out of our dealerships and uh, to try and make them available. So, you know, we will flex based on the need and do as much as possible. Hmm. Have you had any interest uh, coming forward yet? Any bookings? Uh, actually, that's a very good question. I have not had an update in the last hour, but uh, I think once uh, uh, this gets out there through the show and some of the others that are showing interest, I, I think it will probably move forward pretty quickly. And uh, but one thing I did want to say, Bruce, is that you know we're we're just super appreciative because some of our team members are being displaced as well. You know, the BC firefighters, emergency workers, police volunteers and other businesses stepping up yeah you know it's uh, it's impressive to see uh you know canadians coming together to support each other you know uh that brings me to what i wanted to ask you about in terms of business and what you do as a leader a ceo um in any sort of company when you hear these fire or any sort of emergency situations as they pop up uh what role does reaching out actually play in that and how quickly can you go ahead and do that? Because that's not part of the business plan. Uh, it's, uh, it's interesting you ask that question. Um, you know, uh, James Epp and his family, uh, it's, a, it's a privately owned, you know, business. And uh, i got to say, very near and dear to their heart is actually, you know, as I said, at the start, it's part of their DNA. And, uh, you know, when I, I started working for them in uh, what I consider to be uh, one of the fun industries is to understand the depths of care that they have. And they've set up a foundation. And uh, actually, a lot of the things that we do uh, are about providing money through to communities, you know, from World Vision, Midnight Disaster, Samaritan's Purse, Red Cross. Uh, it's a huge giving organization, but he's very humble and quiet about it. 
Um, I know I'm not being quite as quiet about it because I'm, I'm very proud of it. And so, you know, for us, it is part of the DNA. It actually is part of our plan. And, you know, our goal between now and the end of the year is to raise 500000 uh, We start by matching employees' donations and uh, through through the business operations, we're hoping to be able to generate half a million. Um, so you know that's a it's a big goal, but it's it's doable, and we've done it before in uh, many of the disasters that have happened through British Columbia right up to Fort McMurray. You know, help build yeah. fire halls, etc. And so, you know, it's it's something that's very important to phrase away. I love stories like that. They really underscore how very important community is and business plays a very large role in that. Hey, Rex, uh, thanks so much for sharing your story and your time with us. Yeah, thank you, Bruce. Uh, Appreciate it. The fire situation in B.C. and the rest of the country and a lot of talk about uh, why those fires are happening and many drawing some parallels to the situation with climate change. It's a lot really to take in. And after listening to all the stories day after day after day, some people really find it more challenging than others. And it becomes a bit of a mental health issue at times. There is an impact over the concerns over wildfires and climate change on mental health. And someone that's taking a look at this impact is Julia Payson, the executive director of the Canadian Mental Health Association's branch in Vernon. She's going to join us now. Julia, thanks so much for spending some time. I think it's important to really address this topic. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, you know, when we talk about, especially in the Okanagan, all the things that have happened over the last week alone, it really is a lot to take in. Now, you working with uh, Canadian Mental Health and the association's branch there in Vernon, what do you see and what are some of the concerns that really are uh, need to be addressed? So obviously, for a lot of people who are directly impacted, an, an evacuation, being on evacuation alert or, or an order, obviously there's uh, an immediate physical safety concern. Um, there's a concern over... Uh, People's homes, we're, we're now finding out, a lot of people are finding out whether or not uh, they've lost their homes. Uh, we're in a period where people are, are getting to go back in, in some situations. But I think in any any crisis like this, in, in an event like this, obviously the, the stress, the trauma is is acute and it starts, it starts right away and has a, a direct impact on some of those folks. Um, but we also know that, that for everybody else, you know, um, who may not be directly affected by these orders. There's also stress for them. There's fear. Um, you know, we, we, we have actually almost a clear sky right now, which is incredible, but we've been, we've been under orange skies uh, for quite a while. And, you know, often we think about people who have experienced wildfires before being prone to things like some uh, triggering events, post-traumatic stress. But we also have folks who have been through wars who find actually the smoky skies are, are very triggering for that. So, you know, you can have the mental health impacts of the immediate uh, event that's occurring uh, that's causing the stress and anxiety, or you can have these peripheral pieces or even things that people don't necessarily associate with a wildfire, like uh, an experience um, living and surviving through a war zone. I like that you addressed uh, a very important topic and one I've been thinking about over the last couple of days. We've been talking so much about evacuations and there are people, I've got my own friends who are refugees from other places and when they are told about evacuations and hear the word evacuation, they may not even admit it, but they may have a very emotional response to that because they've lived through something that is so serious with evacuations, being a refugee. Do you come across that? We do, and we come across it for people who are refugees. We also come across it, um, you know, with with some of our folks, our elders in the community who, um, you know, may have gone through this decades and decades ago. So it, it may be recent. It may have been 
quite a while ago that someone experienced, but I think it's one of the reasons it's so important. You know, the key messages we, we, we give to people in these times is reach out for help. You deserve help. You, you are worthy of help and feeling better. And also go and, and look for those who we know, you know, um, might need extra help. Reach out. Um, find people in your community who may need extra support because the ability to support others also helps our mental health. So, so definitely, it, it, there's a, a really important consideration there. Julia, you touched on this one, but I want to paint a little bit of a picture here. But I'm just doing it with words, and quite often that's how we get information about crises: is through listening to radio or watching things on TV or reading a paper. But this is very sensory for somebody that may be in or even relatively close to a wildfire situation. You mentioned the sky. I've seen wildfire skies, especially around sunset. They can be considered beautiful. They can also be very eerie when you think of some of the impacts. You can smell the smoke. It's all around you. And also, in many cases, you're breathing in and tasting that smoke. You've got everything working there that's really sensory, and then the information. That combination, what does it end up doing with our mental health? Well, we know that when if you've got that many different things coming at you, right, it, it is going to really hit the different areas. I think one piece that we, when we talk about the smoke and, and you know, for, you know, for us here, you know, we had, this isn't our first fire. So, you know, we have people who are being affected by this fire who were just affected two years ago. We have people who were just getting their building permits, were just getting keys after rebuilding from 2021. So, you know, people who have been through the wildfires and you smell that smoke and you see it, that that all comes right back. On a really practical level, though, and, and this kind of indirect impact on our mental health, we need to be able to deal with our stress, right? That's a really key thing. We live stressful lives. An acute event like this carries a lot of stress, but we need to be able to process that stress physically. And when there's a wildfire and there's smoke, you can't go outside. You can't go take that big, long walk that'll make you feel better or go for a run or, or you know, all those different things. So I think we've we have a, a compound of kind of an immediate event. We have our environment affected. And then we also, in many cases, have our resiliency tested or our, our healing because our coping our coping ways aren't quite there for us. When you think about folks who are in an evacuation, you know, when you've packed up your, your essentials and your, your family and your pets and you've gotten out of there, you may not have the, the things that normally calm you down, the things that make you feel better. You're, you're not, you know, able to go to your gym the next day necessarily because you're in an evacuation center. So we lose all of these pieces that we use to help cope with these really hard feelings and very real feelings um, at the same time that we need the most. So part of what we really try to do is support people getting access to that, uh, finding ways to still do that. And, and I think we see community come together for that. We're talking with Julia Payson, Executive Director of the Canadian Mental Health Association's Vernon Branch. Uh, Julia, how does somebody know they need help? Like if they're feeling something and maybe questioning, is this really a mental health issue or am I just, I don't know. How do they, how do they know? I think the first thing is, is that, so there's really common experiences in a traumatic event. You know, there's really feeling sadness, feeling anger, overwhelm, numbness, you know, maybe having trouble concentrating, um, being really tearful, struggling to sleep. Like these are all natural reactions. And um, often, you know, they're really strong and they go on for maybe a week and then they start to fade. But what we also know is that, you know, in the acute phase, in the first phase, when there's things you've got to get done, you know, it's, it's easy to get through that. You've got people around you. You kind of feel this community resilience and, and resourcefulness. We know for a lot of people that the hardest part is actually after. The hardest part is regaining a sense of control, um, getting, getting your day-to-day activity, your day-to-day life back to normal. Um, for people who have lost their homes, they're going to be in a temporary location, you know, a temporary rental or, or home for, for maybe a couple of years. And where, where people start to know is, you know, are they struggling? Are these symptoms affecting your ability to, ha- to go about in your day-to-day activities? Um, 
honestly, you don't have to be in crisis to call something like one of one of our crisis lines in BC. You know, it's super easy to call the crisis line. It's three one zero six seven eight nine. Anywhere in the province, you can call a crisis line. You don't have to be in crisis. You might just need some extra emotional support. And I think a lot of us across this province need that extra emotional support and it's okay to check in these symptoms are normal these reactions are normal sorry these reactions are normal but if they start to impact our day-to-day life then definitely get some get someone and say you know what i need some help with this and again reach out to those who might also need help just step up and see what you can do because that helps us we know that Yeah, and I'm glad you also mentioned that one. Reach out to somebody else that you think may need help. Somebody that's uh, going through or has the potential of being in a mental health crisis may not know it. So what do we look out for in people that we work with or our loved ones? Any signs that we can look for? Yeah, I, again, we can we can look for people kind of not behaving in ways that, that we know them to normally behave in. And you know what? You don't have to see anything. You can just check in. You can just say, I mean, right now we're starting our meetings at work saying, hey, how are we all doing? And, and you know, when you talk to people right now here in the Okanagan, most people are, are struggling. And being able to be honest about that and talk about those feelings and talk about what those struggles might be is the key to ensuring you're a safe, you're a safe place then. They can talk to you and they might come back to you later and say, I'm still struggling, I need more help. And, you know, one thing that's really cool, I already talked about crisis lines, but I'll talk about it again. If someone's really struggling and they don't know what to do, you two can actually call a crisis line together and you can, like, dial it for them and you can talk together and, and help them see if there's resources that, that are available to them that might be there. So I think just be aware that, you know, everyone is, is struggling in many ways all the time, but in a, in a, in a time like this, um, being open and honest about it and making space yeah. for those conversations, that's, that's a really good way to find out. Julia, thanks so much for your time. Very important topic. And I hope we all picked up a little bit of uh, advice that we're going to act on. And with me now is Jerry Mayer, Judson Show contributor. And, you know, Jerry, we've been talking so much on the show about people helping others during the wildfire situation. Mm-hmm. You have reached out to a very important demographic. Tell me about that. Yes, indeed, because we're not seeing a bunch of attention for the older adults who've been displaced by wildfires. So Dr. Roger Wong is a clinical professor of geriatric medicine at UBC. And I talked to him to get some practical tips on how to support older adults who have been displaced by wildfire-related evacuations. So first of all, my heart goes out to everyone who has been impacted by the recent evacuations as a result of the wildfire situation. We have witnessed that with very heavy hearts, um, both in BC but also in the Northwest Territory. Mm-hmm. A significant number of older adults who are living in long-term care homes have been relocated. And we have read stories of the heroic efforts of all the teams and the care staff in terms of what they try to do. What this means for the older adults who are impacted is that it is a significant significant loss, like people have lost their home, at least temporarily. You know, there are impact on emotional health, mental health, and physical health. I am particularly concerned for older adults who may live with long-standing health conditions such as dementia or Alzheimer's disease, because for them, they may not fully understand the reason or the scope of what is going on around them, and that could lead to periods of confusion, depression, anxiety, and sometimes people may act out. I think it's really important for all of us to keep that in mind and figure out what we can do to help supporting these older adults but also their loved ones and families because many of whom are also displaced and evacuated. What can I do whether I'm physically present there or not but how can I best support the older adults in my life if they've been evacuated? I think the first thing is to recognize that because the change of the location from their home is a significant change. uh, What we need to do is to help the person to establish a state routine as quickly as possible. It may mean the time when they sleep, the time when they awake, the time when they eat, the time when they do personal activities such as personal care and 
hygiene, everything. Try to stick with the same routine as quickly as possible and minimize the number of changes. So for example, in long-term care homes, whenever feasible, try to minimize the number of moves of the rooming arrangement. Mm. And that could be very helpful. For many older adults, they may already be using glasses or hearing aids, using things that will help them to make sure that they can see and they can hear properly. And those things are really important because what we're talking about is how do we um, make sure that they have very good ways of keeping oriented. It's important for everyone, but especially important for those who are living with dementia or Alzheimer's disease. We know that for all of us, going back to our comfort zone, anything that is familiar to us is important. And that applies to all of our older adults as well. That means sometimes having a family picture by their side, having a familiar piece of music, some practical things like having a clock in the room, a calendar on the wall, a newspaper close by, things that will help them to reorient in terms of where they are. For example, if someone in a long-term care home lives with dementia, they may not understand where their new room is. Having a familiar personal object at the entrance of the room may help them orient. Whenever possible, for those who are able to, to walk and mobilize, resume physical activity as quickly as possible. You know, any kind of mobility and movement is also helpful to the body and to the mind. If at all possible, doing things in groups so people can actually socialize at the same time and people can discuss and share their emotions about the change and the loss. And last but not least, for family members, I can only imagine how difficult it must be because some of them are also displaced by the evacuation and some of them may now be distances apart from their loved ones in long-term care homes that are relocated elsewhere in the province. And if that's the case, make sure that whenever possible, try to keep that social connection. If it is not physically in person, at least a, a phone call, a video call. We have learned a lot of lessons from the COVID-19 pandemic. We can apply some of those lessons in this emergency kind of situation. Uh, my heart really goes out to everyone. Yeah, well, an important one, Jerry Mayor Judson. Thanks so much for that. Yeah, it's been about 24 to 48 hours of some degree of relief in the wildfire situation in the interior. But the reality is wildfires continue to burn and evacuation orders and alerts are up and people are moving into evacuation centers. We bring in Michael Getz, the mayor of Merritt. And the reason why I like talking to Michael Getz is... His community is in kind of like a unique position or a unique location. He's got fires to the west, fires to the north, and fires to the east, and is also in a wildfire area himself, even though there isn't currently a big wildfire right there. Let's bring in Mike. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for joining us. We know that Merritt has been welcoming evacuees from different areas. How are you guys holding up? We're doing really good, Bruce. Uh, we are lucky, as you say, but uh, one of the th- situations that changes us a little bit is because of the wildfires we had in 2021 that pretty much burnt a lot of the uh, standing timber uh, around us, like the fire from Lytton ran all the way to William, uh, Logan Lake and took a lot of the fuel out of the ground, and then we had the Juliet Creek just out going on the Coquihalla. So we have lost a fair amount of timber around here, but we are surrounded by fire at this point in time, and we're being very aware of it. But we're doing good, and uh, we are accepting uh, people from wherever they need to come, and we're getting them uh, fed, clothed, and in hotels and comfortable until they can return home. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. I uh, was up in Merritt, well, actually twice this summer, but uh, the first time was back in June, and I remember seeing so many areas of burned land all the way around Merritt, and I thought, oh, boy. Uh, but I guess if there is a good side to this, some of the fuel supply is gone. Um, with the lit evacuations, that's one of the areas. Smaller fires for sure, fewer people for sure. But still, if you're in Lytton, that doesn't help because you've had to move out of your community again and you're still on evacuation order. It's true for some of the areas in the Fraser Canyon. Merritt is not, by the way, all that terribly close to Lytton for those that want to know the geography but still, you've opened your doors to Lytton. How's that working out? Oh, actually, great. We took the, uh, in 2021, when the, the community burned, we had, our ESS was open here for five and a half months. We took in all of uh, Lytton, all of Logan Lake, all of Lower Nicola, uh, all of uh, Tunkwa Lake area. We had so many people in our community. 
Uh, and to be honest with you, Bruce, we still have some evacuated people that are here two years later that are still uh, in our community waiting for theirs to get rebuilt. So uh, a lot of the Lytton people this go-round have gone to uh, Lillooet, and we, we've taken in about 40 um, Lytton uh, refu- uh, you don't call, uh, you know, the affected, and I think we've taken in about 30 from West Kelowna, but the West, a lot of the West Kelowna people have been cleared to return home. So uh, my brother and his wife were evacuated from West Kelowna. They spent four days with us. And my wife and I volunteer at ESS, so uh, we're right in the thick of things when this happens. So my, my brother basically was here and had an empty house because we were at uh, ESS for uh, pretty much for three straight days getting people uh, set up and, and into hotels. And uh, just want to say thank you to our local group here, uh, hotels and food outlets and uh, the clothing stores and all the stores in town that uh, accept the vouchers and with no question and help these people who are evacuated uh, to be able to settle and have peace of mind while they wait to return home. It, It really goes a long way to help these people. Sure does. Mike, I just want to take a sidestep and go back to something you had mentioned there because it caught me a little bit by surprise, but it also answers a question I've had to me about what happened to the people from Lytton two years ago. Not everyone is still in the community. Where are they? Uh, now I'm getting uh, the first idea for myself that some of them are staying in Merritt, even right now, even as we talk. What is yes, the deal still, with that? We still have some uh, some evacuees here. Uh, a lot of the other evacuees have uh, moved in with families um, that are not in Lytton. They're waiting for Lytton to be rebuilt. And um, those that are here will eventually return home and, um, you know, we'll look after them as long as we need to. Um, This becomes a provincial situation. I mean, ESS is set up basically for 72 hours, basically a five-day situation. But then after a certain point in time, Red Cross and the government step in to continue to look after them. But, yes, we still have some Lytton people here uh, from 2021. And now we have some Lytton people. Some of the Lytton people that we served in 2021 are here again in 2022. So uh, we kind of recognize each other. It's kind of an outstanding joke that we get to see them every other year. And uh, which, you know, even though ESS, and it's a very stressful time, when they come through the door and they see the same workers, um, they feel, uh, you know, like it's a sense of knowledge. We know each other and they know they're going to be looked after. So, um yeah, we get to see some, uh, we're not calling them regulars, and we don't want to, but we get to, we're getting to see some of the families that we actually helped two years ago. It's a unique situation in 2023 uh, to be welcoming them back, uh, some of them uh, two years later, some that never left. Yeah. Uh, when we talk about, and still a big focus right now, is on some of the fires uh, to the north of you uh, in the shoe swap. You've heard some of the stories about, uh, evacuation alerts and evacuation orders and some people staying in the areas and uh, and protecting their homes no matter what. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I was flooded in 2021 and I was evac- evacuated from my home, but I returned as quickly as I could because I had seven feet of water in my basement and winter was coming. And I knew that if I did not get back in to get that pumped out, I would have lost my home. Foundations would have pushed out because everything would have frozen solid. So I chose to return as well. Now, evacuation orders work in a certain way. Uh, if I'm a mayor and, and I throw out an evacuation order, um, you will be given the order to leave, but it's up to you to leave. If you choose not to leave, that's your call. Uh, but you're on your own, and then you have to stay on your property. The minute you come off your property, you can be removed. Some people stay behind because they feel that they can save their homes. And this is all some people have. And they know, you know, uh, some people are hitting retirement age. They don't want to lose what they have. So they will stay to the bitter end. And um, I I can't say as I blame them because I had the same mindset in 2021 when my whole community was underwater. And uh, a lot of us realized we had to come home. So we found ways to get back into the community, even though we realized it was a bad idea to be here. But uh, we had to save our homes and I can see where they're coming from. So for me, it's I'm right on the fence on that. Uh, I don't want anybody to stay, see anybody stay behind and get in trouble or get hurt. But I also know that they know what their land looks like and they know what they can protect. But then they do put um, the fire department and uh, some of the rescuers in a predicament where they could get hurt trying to get them out. So it's a very tough line to uh, to walk. Uh, and everybody will walk it differently. And uh, that's that's kind of where it goes. Yeah, it's a tough one indeed. Um you know, the other thing is, and this is especially true with Meriton area, you're in horse and cattle country, and somebody's got to take care of livestock quite often. 
what are you hearing about that from some of the areas uh, that are the wildfire evacuation zones right now? Is Merritt able to take in some of the horses, some of the cattle? Is there any movement into your community for that? We do have the uh, part of our area for uh, rehoming, and we do have the rodeo grounds, which has, I think, 25 stalls for horses. And we actually do have the rodeo grounds. And uh, up around Lum Lum Lake, there is the uh, wild uh, horsemen uh, have set up corrals up there uh, and some horses. And, and most of the time, a lot of farmers just turn their cattle loose, let them run, because you know animals will run away from fire, and eventually they'll come back home. Um, but horses, we, we are able to board horses here, and we have in the past. And we're able to board dogs. We have a, a group that takes dogs and cats uh, from some of the evacuees because some of the hotels won't take them. So we do have that covered now. I mean, we can't cover everybody. If somebody shows up and says, I've got 1,100 head of cattle, well, there's not much we can do about that. But if they show up and they have four horses or something, yes, we can accommodate them. That's not a problem. Mike, uh, you know, one of the people we had on the show just uh, in the last hour was Greg Kylo. Uh, shoe swap MLA. I know you do know who he is. Uh, he stressed uh, that when I asked the question, and a good question, I think, uh, is there a disconnect between people that are policymakers in Victoria and those who live in areas like, in his case, a shoe swap? He said, absolutely. And I've got to ask you, do you agree with him? Well, I don't know if there's a disconnect. I think what ends up happening is People who live in the bigger cities like Surrey, Abbotsford, uh, Vancouver, do not have to experience things like wildfires. Us that live out in the interior and southern interior, we experience it all the time and and we know uh, what we're looking at. And I'm not saying it's a disconnect. I think what really needs to happen here in the future, Bruce, and this year is a classic example, is we really need to start asking some hard questions on how we're going to mitigate the forests, keep communities safe, and make sure that, uh, you know, we don't have uh, fire after fire threatening community over and over and over again. Um, it's time to have a, a frank conversation uh, with uh, larger um, uh, fire breaks uh, closer to cities, maybe moving trees back up a kilometre up every hill that where trees are touching the community barriers. I mean, we've got to start doing something. In the Kelowna fire, some of those embers were hitting 30,000 feet in the air and flying so we have to have a conversation. I don't know if there's a disconnect. I think what we need to do is I think we need to uh, help educate some of our, our um, provincial people. UBCM is coming up. I plan on speaking to the Premier, Minister Ralston, Minister Kang, Minister Ma, about the future of what our, our, our fire mitigation and our, our fire protection can be. Um, you know, are, are our planes getting antiquated? Do we need to start looking at maybe uh, looking at different contractors that are flying uh, planes, etc.? There's a lot of questions that have to be asked here, and uh, mitigation of the forest floor is one of them. We all know that we've got a ton of bug kill out there that is standing, and they're just like matches. They're dry and dead. Some of this stuff has to be knocked down, so... There's a lot. I don't think it's a disconnect. I think it's the fact that we all need to talk and get our points out there, pick the best points, and then move towards a solution that's good for all of the people that are living in areas that that could possibly be uh, ravaged by wildfire. Well, fair enough. And I think communication is going to be important. So all hands are talking to each other. And if there's anything that comes out of this uh, fire season, I hope it is uh, some sort of consortium or bringing together of people so they can have those very important talks. There are lessons to be learned. Uh, One of the things I came across, and I don't know how you feel about this, not a provincial thing, but a federal thing, evacuees in national parks can go in and tent for free right now. Um, To me, it just seems like a bonehead uh, move out of a place like Ottawa where they're uh, thinking, you know, just pitch a tent, you'll be fine. Uh, Makes no sense to me. But no, you know, uh, working, uh, and this is why I encourage most people who are mayors and councillors to join their local ESS. I've been at this since 2021, and when you see people come through the door that have been evacuated at 10.30 at night or 3.30 in the morning, first of all, they look like they've come from a war zone. They're shocked. They're upset. And you learn very quickly that you can't just pitch a tent somewhere and wait it out. These people are worried about everything from where's the rest of my family to uh, is my home going to be there when I get back? Do I have insurance? Absolutely. We need need communities to uh, be aware 
that you can't just pitch a tent and hope things go by. You have to be there for these people. I appreciate that. And for time, I'm going to have to cut you there. But absolutely what I said. Michael Getz, always a pleasure. Mayor of Merritt. Talking a little bit now about the impact on air quality. And that differs depending upon your location, obviously. In the lower mainland, it was breathing a little bit easier over the past 24 or 48 hours. A little bit more smoke today, I would argue, than yesterday. We had some clear skies, though, and all of that is about to change. In the interior, going to change big time, too, as uh, the smoke is going to move into areas from the current wildfires right into the north of where they're happening right now. But let's check in with Air Quality Planner for Metro Vancouver, Marina Richter. Thanks so much for joining us, Marina. Uh, Hello, thank you for having me. Marina, when we talk about the air quality, I think it's going to be, from what I've heard, a very different story tomorrow than there is right now. Am I right? Uh, It might. Uh, So at the moment, uh, as you mentioned, Metro Vancouver and the Fraser Valley are experiencing hazy conditions that have returned to the region due to smoke from wildfires burning throughout B.C. and uh, Washington state. We expect, based on air quality data and smoke models, that smoke is likely to persist today and overnight, and uh, uh, potentially stronger smoke impacts um, for tomorrow uh, with with the possibility of smoke to become widespread. Uh, so currently, concentrations of fine particulate matter, we also call it PM2.5, are, cur- uh, are currently below air quality advisory thresholds, but they're expected to gradually rise overnight, uh, especially in the eastern portions of the Fraser Valley. Um, and air quality advisory is possible tomorrow if this trend continues. And um, smoke and wildfire behavior can change quickly, as we know. And uh, we at Metro Vancouver are closely monitoring conditions. When do you issue the air quality advisories? Is it just after a certain scheduled time of checking the particulate matter? Or is it when the air actually gets worse? Uh it's, uh, it's basically both. Uh, we have uh, a certain health-based objectives for fine particulate matter, or PM2.5, and we are watching uh, the real data from our air quality monitoring stations that we have uh, in Lower Mainland from Horseshoe Bay to Hope. And as soon as uh, uh, the data show that those objectives have been exceeded, we issue an air quality advisory. Which areas in the lower mainland between uh, Metro Vancouver and the Fraser Valley have been the superstars in terms of the worst air quality, according to the measurements this week? Uh, It really varies, uh, but right now we see some elevated PM 2.5 concentrations uh, east uh, uh, of our region, uh, specifically in Hope and Agassiz, but those levels have not yet reached the threshold for, for an air quality advisory, so we're just watching the data uh, at, the, at the moment. I know back on the weekend, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm just going off of the memory, but Marina, it seemed like back last weekend, we could almost taste and smell the, uh, the air. It was really the big senses coming in. And uh, I was coughing a little bit because of it. Was that the worst of it that we've seen this summer in the Lower Mainland back on the weekend? Uh, Yeah, the last weekend was uh, definitely um, uh, some of the probably the heaviest uh, smoke episodes that we've seen this summer. Uh, And uh, but. I have to say that so far we've been pretty lucky with air quality in low, in the lower mainland because uh, with with the amount of wildfires, uh, uh, with the quantities um, and and the intensity of wildfires burning in BC, uh, we've just been lucky that our region has have not has not been exposed to the wildfire smoke as much as it could have. Yeah, it's not as bad as years in the past. I think it was two years ago that uh, it was almost in the evening you go out to take a walk and you could see almost every night just at sunset those orange sunsets 
and that was because it was just so smoky. That's not happening this year, even though you've got so many fires or we keep hearing about the fires. Is there, you know, when you get together with uh, your partners over at Environment Canada and uh, your experts there with uh, the regional district, um, do you guys talk about uh, what is the difference between this year and years in the past? Uh, we do, and we look at the, uh, the longer trends uh, through, through the years. Uh, it really varies. Some years could be worse, some years could be better, and the intensity of smoke can also vary depending on uh, uh, the intensity of the wildfires, how close they are to our region, and also uh, depending on meteorology conditions and uh, how fast that smoke can build up in the region. Okay, bottom line, when we come into tomorrow, if there is that air quality advisory coming out, what are the recommendations for people? What do they need to do and who has to heed the warning the most? The best advice uh, we have for people to protect themselves from the wildfire smoke is to stay inside in uh, uh, possibly air-conditioned or air-controlled space. So uh, that uh, space could be either provided in your house if you have air conditioning, and uh, uh, it's always a good idea to check how well uh, isolated your uh, house from uh, outdoor airs. Uh, Close the windows, close the door, make sure there are no leaks. If that is not possible, uh, we recommend going to the public spaces that uh, have uh, air-controlled environments such as mall, libraries, community centers that also can provide those conditions and uh, potentially some relief for people um, in terms of protection from the wildfire smoke. Uh, Good advice. Uh, Head over to the mall if you're having trouble. That's also very true, Mm -hmm. of course, for people dealing with heat. Malls are air-conditioned, and it's a good place to be. Marina, thanks so much for sharing with us. Thank you, Bruce, and thanks for having me. And time to talk about staycations in our ongoing series that we're delving into some of the big stories of places where you can go over the summer closer to home. Don't have to hop on a plane. Don't have to go anywhere all that far. Let's bring in show contributor Jerry Mayer Johnson, who, along with technical producer Talia Miller, got the assignment to go to the... Vancouver Aquarium. And for what reason? Because I had never been there before. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) So it's hard. It's hard to do our job, Bruce. Yeah, indeed. (laughs) And what did you find? Well, it was actually... It was possibly some of the most fun I've ever had in my life, uh, let alone the most fun I think I've ever had on the clock. It was, yeah, it was magical. Um, Todd Hobsman, the communications manager over there, he was kind enough to bring us in personally, take us around to various members on the staff who are super knowledgeable, and everyone made sure we had an amazing time. I mean, you can listen to the amazing time that we had. I have never been to the Vancouver Aquarium before. Actually, I haven't been to Stanley Park before. So I'm here with Talia. Hello. We're going on a tour of the Vancouver Aquarium. I don't even have any preconceived notions. I have no idea. I hope I see a shark. I just saw my first aquatic mammal. This little seal guy, he's so cute. Oh, he swam away. We have eight um, sea otters and they are all uh, rescues. Really? So the Vancouver Aquarium rescues about 100 uh, animals a year. So in this habitat is our wild coast. All of our animals here have strong ties to our Marine Mammal Rescue Center. So we've got Pim and Skeena here, which are our baby harbor seals. They came to our rescue center last season and were two that were deemed non-releasable due to vision. Skeena is completely blind. Pim is mostly blind. We think she's got a little bit of vision or can see shadows. So we're able to provide them a home here, which is super awesome. They're learning lots of new things. Donnelly came to us a couple years ago. She was struck by a boat, um, which rendered her completely blind. But really nice little silver lining to her story is that they actually found out she was pregnant and she was able to give birth to her pup and her pup was able to go back out into the ocean um, and kind of carry on her little legacy as it were. All of our stellar sea lions have participated in multitudes of research to help better understand their species. Their population declined by about 80% in the early 1990s, and they didn't really know why. So us, Alaska Sea Life Center, all got together and got to know a lot more about these animals. So these guys are (laughs) literal superstars for their species. 
So all the jellyfish that we have here at the aquarium, we have propagated and raised up ourselves. Oh, wow. And so that's, that's kind so of cool. exciting. A lot of people don't necessarily realize yeah. that each one of those has kind of been handpicked many, many times <laughs> by all of our aquarists there. So That's really cool. So yeah, lots of uh, love and time spent. Landmark things to see as part of our local gallery. I mentioned the octopus that we have. We have one in our Treasure of the BC Coast Gallery. We have large wolf eels that we do raise up a lot of animals here in-house. I mentioned the jellyfish already, um, but if we do get the chance, maybe a lot of fish will lay eggs in certain habitats. We can pull those eggs out and raise them up as larvae and maybe put them back in our exhibits. Basically what we do is we kind of we call it an incubator, but okay. it's a fancy term for just a tube that gets a lot of nice fresh flow coming through. Okay, sure. If you look here, these are it's a kind of a little egg oh. clump. But those little golden specks are actually their little eyes. Um, oh, so when what? those, yeah, so when those hatch out, we'll bring them over, over to, to our the other uh, tub. Okay. I'm show you what those guys look no like. way! <laughs> so many baby fish. These guys. Oh. Uh, so on the top, these tiny, tiny larvae will oh, feed on those. Oh, so you can see those guys. They have their big peck fins on the side. Um, and there's a couple. I, I keep referring <gasps> to them as big monsters in here, but it's very I mean, much a relative do. term. Do you have a favorite aquatic animal or mm. fish here? So that's always a tricky question. I feel like it kind of changes constantly, yeah. especially kind of depend recency bias and depends True. on what you're working with. Uh, I would say one of my favorites is we have a uh, Atlantic spiny lump sucker in our Arctic exhibit. That's quite the name. <laughs> I know, exactly. <laughs> So the Amazon area is a large walkthrough gallery. So you're gonna be in like a big open jungle. So if you're doing your staycation, you get a little taste of the tropics. Uh, there's gonna be free flighted birds. There's some frogs running around. There's tortoises. There's really cool stuff in there. And then we have their pals, the piranhas over here. Ooh. Contrary to popular belief, these guys are not like vicious man eaters. There are wimpiest fish for sure. <laughs> like these guys are scared of novel food. If we are changing the lights above them, we have to do it incrementally, really slowly, because they don't like changes above their exhibit. Huge wimps. And they don't just have sea creatures. We got birds. We've got primates. Like all these monkeys. So wonderful and so knowledgeable. Clearly they know what they're talking about. They have a passion for what they're doing, every single one of them. Let's see a sloth. Oh, I'm ready for Barry. Look at him. Okay, um, so we're gonna go inside. Yeah, those teeth are no joke. We are inside of the sloth. Look at him. So his name is Barry Allen. We named him after the Flash. He's pretty fast. What he wants to be, uh, especially after he poops. <laughs> he gets the post poop zoomies. <laughs> he usually just speeds around his habitat. Barry was so sweet. What a sweet guy, just chilling there looking. Can you believe that he big like teeth. three times a human's power? Frightening. I would love a clownfish cone, yes please. Thank you. That is a fan favorite for adults and for kids. For sure. How many of these do you think you sell on a busy day? Oh, we can sell upwards of 300. They're definitely a favorite amongst the kids and the adults. Everybody yeah. loves them. We did it. We did the whole aquarium. There's so yep. much more than I thought that there was even going to be. I didn't right? expect, right? I didn't expect to see three sloths today. I know. It's like a sneaky little zoo in there. There's so, 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 so much to do. It sparks my inner child being around all of these creatures again. And just like the curiosity and the wonder and the staff were so knowledgeable oh on my all of them. What they do here is really incredible. Oh, it was so amazing. And I did not make it through the gift shop without buying a stuffed yeah, otter. <laughs> oh, the stuffed otters, yeah. Uh, by the way, Jerry and Talia are back in the studio now. And uh, time to ask some questions. The important questions, yeah. Jerry. Like, what was the animal? If there was any animal out there, the one that had you stopped and say, I just got to look at this and stay here for a little bit more. Oh, I really liked the monkeys. They had Goldie's monkeys. <laughs> They're these little... They're tiny, they're super dark in color. They're like bigger than a spider monkey, but I could not, in the Amazon area, I could not stop looking at them. They were yeah. so cute. They were like screaming and like hopping around. But if I had to do like an aquatic creature, I think the octopus actually, yeah. that's yeah. a highlight for everybody. Oh, yes. Yeah. Talia, did you have a highlight? Oh, definitely the otters. You know, they're just oh, so yeah. playful and full of personality and like <laughs> swimming away and being like, I oh, know I'm cute. Look at me. What is it about otters? They actually kind of uh, remind us of puppies, don't they? They do, don't they? <laughs> now that you say that, yeah. Yeah, uh, just how they're, they're very playful. Yeah. And I think that's uh, one of the reasons why we all love otters. Absolutely. Now, did you notice this? Uh, 
part of the aquarium is really muggy. It's really like you go into that tropical area Lord. and oh, yeah. it's <laughs> I, really uh, hot, isn't it? Oh, yeah. I was sweating like nobody's business when I was in there. <laughs> it, was, it was not great. It Same with... Hot. Yeah, it was hot. Same with when we went into, we were there so, so kind as to let us into uh, Barry Allen's enclosure, the sloth that was in the middle of the room. Barry it, Allen's enclosure. Yeah, Barry <laughs> Allen's enclosure. It sounds like it sounds like a proper man, yeah. this like two-toed sloth, but uh, it was muggy in there too. I was, it was, it was, uh, yeah. Did you see the sloth spot. move? He didn't move too much while we were there. We They were feeding him in front of us, and he was just, like, very much just, like, come to me. They tried to have him move, and he just wasn't having it. Yeah. You know, we have so many stories, and we have so many images in our mind of what a sloth is, mm-hmm. let down or real. Oh, so much better than I could have ever possibly imagined. Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah, much scarier, though. Their teeth are absolutely <laughs> massive. Yeah. And he has yeah. these weird eyes, too, that kind of just, like, stared into your soul. He was very cute, but as he chewed, they kind of bugged out a little bit. They yeah, showed us, like and one it of was kind of funny toys. to watch. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's so much that goes on behind the scenes. I don't know. Did you get any hint of uh, what happens, not display side, but behind the actual displays? Oh, absolutely. They gave us a really good tour and like showed us um, kind of the production of it, how they keep all the tanks at temperature the way they want to, um, them breeding some jellyfish. It was quite like what they're doing over there, like had no idea. Yeah. And they're um, actually they're doing I didn't have time to include this, but uh, they were doing um leopard frogs they're trying to repopulate the leopard frog population oh okay yeah and so it's not an exhibit proper but up on the roof of the aquarium where they were so kind as to take us we got to look at these it was such an impressive operation they had these Mm -hmm. greenhouses um that were covered by like um black mesh to get the heat like kind of beating down on them and then they opened the door and we didn't get to go inside because they're uh very much quarantined so they don't get sick before they get re-released but uh there are so many leopard frogs that they're raising up there so So the vancouver aquarium worth a staycation uh, trip i'm gonna go back as soon as i have the first conceivable opportunity (laughs) (laughs) well thank you so much and i'm looking forward to going back again myself after hearing that uh yeah show contributor jerry mayor judson and technical producer talia miller back from the vancouver aquarium on their staycation Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.